federal agency's electronic medical records are about to get a lot more interoperable with private sector health records. Agencies like DOD and Veterans Affairs already are members of the eHealth Exchange. That's the country's biggest health information exchange network. But now they've reached legal agreement that will let them start using a much broader health interoperability framework. It'll add another 20 networks to the federal picture. Alan Swenson is executive director of Care Equality, the nonprofit that runs the framework. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. So folks actually know what we're talking about here. Can you give us just a quick 101 on the plumbing behind our nation's entire health information exchange infrastructure and where you sit within that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Jared. There's a lot going on in the nation with uh, healthcare interoperability. It's a big focus of the federal government and, and has been for quite a while. So Care Equality, the organization that I represent, is a nationwide exchange framework that enables the exchange of information across Uh, disparate networks throughout the country. So as many probably know, there are state and regional HIEs all around the country. There are EHR vendors that have their own networks for exchange between their customers. There are uh, vendors that sell proprietary APIs and things to vendors that don't otherwise have the capability to easily exchange and then have a network through their customers. And then there are large networks that cross HIEs, cross some of the vendors, such as the eHealth Exchange and Commonwealth are two of the big ones that often get talked about. Carry Quality is a framework that connects all of those networks that participate so that the participants of one network are able to exchange with the participants of another network without having to have any sort of agreements or anything in place, technical or legal, that is all under the framework and the governance of care equality to make it so that, for example, the participants under the health exchange can communicate with the participants of Commonwealth without the two needing to be members of each other's networks. Sounds like a big part of it is almost like a translation layer to make one exchange's information comprehensible by another or one system's information comprehensible by another. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, certainly to some extent. The example that we often give is kind of the cell phone network, right? If I use Verizon, you use AT&T or whatever. Uh, You know, back in the day, I used to have to count my minutes and count my text messages. And I would get a certain number of messages when sending to other people using Verizon, but then I had to pay if I was sending someone AT&T, et cetera. And this is kind of where we've been at with healthcare interoperability. And care quality gets rid of a lot of that by just making it so that you don't actually need to know or care whether you're communicating with someone who's also on the same network as you or a cross network. We require everyone to agree to the same contractual terms. Uh, We provide the technical directory so that organizations can communicate and find each other across the country. And then we do point to and define and further constrain some of the specific industry standards. For anyone on the technical side, there are a lot of different standards that are used. And each network may have different standards that they use within their network, but then at the network gateway level, they would translate to the specific standards that carry quality points to so that when, again, eHealth Exchange and Commonwealth, as an example, are communicating with each other, the transaction in the middle is always the same, even if eHealth Exchange within its own community may be using different standards. Got it. So let's talk a bit about, as a practical matter, what the federal government joining actually means. What can a provider do today that he or she couldn't do six months ago, or what could they see that they couldn't see six months ago? Yeah, great question. So the the federal agencies, or some of them already and have been longtime participants in the eHealth Exchange specifically as a network for exchange, some of the primary ones being DOD, VA, and SSA. There certainly are others that participate, but I know those are the ones that I've at least done the most work with in coordinating a lot of this. 
So what this means is that there are a number of organizations that participate and do disability claims adjudication with the Social Security Administration or treat you know, active servicemen and women or veterans and are exchanging records with the DOD and VA on a regular basis. And some of that happens with point-to-point connections or some of that happens with organizations joining the eHealth Exchange in order to participate with those federal agencies. Those federal agencies will now have the ability to agree to some flow-down terms through the eHealth Exchange, who connects them to carry quality, in order to allow them to expand and exchange with other organizations across the entire carry quality framework, not just within the eHealth Exchange network that they're currently connected to today. I understand part of the, I don't know if delay is the right word here, but part of the challenge in getting the federal agencies on board was that they wanted specific policy language in their agreements with you. How different is the federal space here compared to all of the private exchanges that you've dealt with over the years? What's special about the feds? Well, I don't want to say there's nothing special about the feds. There certainly are special things about the feds, but uh, anytime that lawyers get involved, things quickly get more complicated. And that's where a lot of this you know, wasn't necessarily that there was anything that ever prohibited the federal agencies from participating in the past. Rather, there was some interpretation of how we point to certain federal laws and just kind of defer to applicable law, allowing a lot of participating organizations to determine which federal and state laws and regulations would apply to their organization. There were some concerns from the federal agencies and their legal representatives of how that would apply to some of the specific federal regulations that only apply to federal agencies and don't necessarily apply to the other organizations that are already participating around the country. And so a lot of what needed to be updated, and and ultimately what was updated is Carry Quality has a single document, Carry Quality Connected Agreement, and that is what all of these networks agree to in order to ensure consistent legal terms across everyone participating. And then there are some specific terms that those implementers, we call them, those networks are implementers of the Carry Quality Framework. There are some specific terms that they have to flow down to their connected organizations. And there were some clarification and updates that we made in both of those documents to ensure that there are specific things that are carved out for federal agencies or that are called out for federal agencies that have other applicable law and regulations beyond just the basics of HIPAA and things that apply to other healthcare organizations. Got it. Just at the risk of stating the obvious here, one of the reasons I think this is so important is both DOD and VA increasingly have patients that are being seen by private providers. So it's obviously incredibly useful for their primary care providers to be able to see medical records that were generated on the outside. Does that relationship work both ways? Can that outside private sector provider now see records that were generated from within one of the federal agencies? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the fundamental tenets of care equality is is reciprocity, in particular when exchange is happening for the purpose of treatment. There are some additional requirements around like what the SSA does is for coverage determination, or if it were payment operations, patient-initiated requests, public health, et cetera. But when exchange is happening for the purpose of treatment, we do require that organizations that ask for information from others also share their information with others. So there is a reciprocity requirement there. Now, again, some of that gets into what the federal agencies had some concerns around certain types of data that they may not be able to always share or that they need to ensure is covered when the other organization is receiving that from the federal agency. So we do have some call-outs there to ensure that all of that is met and that federal agencies are comfortable. But what it ultimately means is that once, say, the DOD, for example, were to connect, they would immediately be able to exchange records bidirectionally with every other 
already connected carry quality participating organization without any pre-coordination or special agreements with those organizations. Before we close out here, can you just say a bit about protecting health information? I mean, obviously we want as much interoperability as possible, but I assume you don't want a situation where any provider in the country can look at any individual patient's record regardless of whether they have a relationship with them. So how do you go about verifying that this request for data is in fact for bona fide medical treatment? Yeah, and for the most part, it is uh, actual and policy-based. Carry quality itself has nothing technical in the middle. The exchange between DOD through the health exchange, for example, over to, you know, a clinical works site or an EPIC site or something would be directly from the health exchange server to, you know, those EPIC servers or clinical works servers. There's nothing that goes through carry quality. We provide the technical server certificates. So the exchange, the mutual TLS can be trusted. And we also provide the directory so the organizations can find each other. But ultimately, we then have contractual terms and policies around what does treatment, for example, mean, uh, largely pointing to the definition under HIPAA. And then we have processes where if there are concerns or issues that arise, we have a dispute resolution process and are able to point to those policies. But one of the main tenets of care equality really is trust and that you don't necessarily know anything about the organizations you're exchanging with. But because everyone has agreed to the same contractual and policy terms, you can trust that they are using it in the same manner that you are using it and therefore don't need to know anything else about that organization. They are approved by Care Equality and added into this directory, even though Care Equality doesn't necessarily see the transactions to verify in the middle. Alan Swenson, executive director of Care Equality, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, 
He took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so 
I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. Let's get you taken care of.